Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. How you doing, Will? Hey, Gordon. Doing well. This topic is a, this is a cool creature. I'm excited to hear from you on this one. You've interacted with these creatures. I've seen them in the wild, um, but I haven't interacted with them right in an uh, up close and personal but uh, but it's a, remarkable for a lot of reasons yeah uh, uh there's a kind of a rich history of exploration connected to these a little bit and at least that i'm a little bit familiar with there's mm-hmm. it's a it's a relatively low diversity yeah for this creature and 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 like some of the other creatures we've talked about recently unmistakably unique uh different from uh, right. From all the rest, yeah, and so we're talking about these these remarkably lovable marine sausages, yeah, that we call the manatees, yeah, uh, and the the relatives, the dugong, right, and uh, I think four species in the world, yeah, and th- yeah, in the in the whole order, in uh, the whole si- order Cyrenia. that that are extant at least, yeah. yeah. So you've got the what the African manatee and the the American, manatee. yeah, they call it the West Indian manatee. Ours. West, yes, yeah, the which West I've Indi- always yeah. wondered about that. West Indian I, manatee, uh, definitely in Florida. You yeah, know? that's where we saw our, the ones we interacted with. Yeah, and riot, uh, riot in the dance water. And then there's an Amazon species. Okay, so those are three manatees, and then the, there's only there's, one dugong. There's only one dugong over in the Southeast Asia yes. and Aus- Australia, right? And, so wow. the Amazon is ex- the Am- that one's exclusively fresh water. Yeah, it actually lives so, up up river. So it's the you know you you have some mammals that are well you've got the whales that are fully aquatic, and then you've got but you've got the pinnipeds that are they can they're very aquatic but they come up on land. Yep. to give uh, birth. So you manatees and dugongs are the this second group of mammals that are let's see is there anything else that's completely aquatic like the whales marine mammals uh, por- uh, porpoises ma- and whales are kind of lumped well, together well yeah i'm por- lo- it's that cetacea so any yeah, other orders yeah. that are completely aquatic so mm. the the sirenians are right. completely aquatic they you know live out their whole life breeding everything yeah the pinnipeds the cetaceans and the sirenians i think that's yeah it. but the pinnipeds come up on land so the sirenians are completely aquatic are walruses in the pinnipeds yep okay walruses are pinnipeds okay so you've got yeah the 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 sirenians the dugongs and manatees are are completely aquatic yeah what a cool many many young kids know all these facts already i mean there are some little kids that are walking zoologists and they know all these facts probably parrot a bunch of facts that I don't even know. But um the these are amazingly docile back in the early days of American history where there was a, a lot of wanton slaughter of just lots of creatures. And but now they're protected. Yep. And uh as are all marine mammals. Yep. 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 And these guys will will go out to sea uh to do but when we went to see them in early 2019 in Florida, it was in January. So they 
they leave the ocean to get away from the cooler water. Yeah. And, you know, Homosassa, Crystal River on the west coast of Florida, they, yeah. they um, have these freshwater springs that maintain the temperature at 72 degrees. It's not uh, preferred. They would like it warmer, the, the manatees, <laughs> but it's they're not warm. Keeping, they're not keeping much heat in. They're not keeping much heat in because they don't have this blubber. They're basically this big, they're, they're complete vegetarians yeah. and they don't have a big layer of blubber like uh, whales. Right. And so they lose heat and um, they come up these rivers to, to maintain a decent body temperature. That is so and, interesting. And they're sort of starving because this, the, the, the grasses uh, that are up these rivers are, you know, they've died back. It's sort of wintertime. Yeah. And so they're sort of fasting and they come up these rivers to hang out and get, keep, keep warm. Yeah. Not super warm, but. Is enough. that the time of year you saw them? Yeah. And then they would hustle down to the ocean to, to, to stock up on some food and then head back and tell the ocean waters got warmer. And it's, and it's no small feat to be able to move in and in between a, a marine environment and a freshwater environment. Yeah. That, ta that takes some pretty remarkable uh, anatomical equipment. Well, just movement. Now, they don't have to do no, the physiological not... changes like the, the fish, you know, fish have to change over uh, to do this amazing osmo regulation. But, you know, going from salt to fresh, I don't. I don't know if uh, they're doing much in terms of... Uh, I did read that uh, study out of University of Central Florida that um, it is thought that they don't really readily drink the seawater. And so they, mm -hmm. will, they will go to freshwater to drink, drink. also. Yeah. And they, uh, they, do, they are able to excrete salt like most other... Yeah, if they're taking in too much salt, like right. your merino iguanas will sneeze salt out. Yeah. Because of salt gland up in their nasal cavity. Yeah. So these will, this is a seasonal migration. Yep. And how many, uh, do they, uh, in, in your experience with them, um, or otherwise are what kind of, uh, what's, what are their social structures like, or do they live in large groups or do we know much about that kind well, of, you know, I, I'm not up on the, the facts that they can be in small groups. Yeah. You know, we, we saw them in, they weren't super dense, but, yeah. um, we saw them in groups. Like how and many then, did you, you see know, at a, any given in a time? Group. You know, I wasn't counting, but in any one group, I'd sometimes see maybe 10, 12. Okay. They were not dense. Um, and then we, we, uh, get, get into the water with our masks and snorkel, no fins and let the manatees come up to us. And, um, our, our captain was very chill about it. Some will be like, no, no touch at all. Now- Make your they, mask up before you pet the manatee. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, basically, they said, don't pursue them. Don't grab their fins. Don't or, stress them out. Don't basically. stress them out. Yeah. But uh, he was pretty chill and said, you know, if you, if they're coming up to you to be scratched and rubbed, you know, oblige them. Yeah. And so uh, they would come up to us and sort of roll on their side and- uh, they would just relish uh, the, the rubs that you'd give them. You know, <laughs> That's so cool. I love it. I mean, it was like <laughs> their skin was pretty, you know, gnarly. It was, um, it, 
it usually had a little bit of uh, silt on it and with sparsely hair. There's yeah. sparse coats of hair that are sensory, you know? Yeah. Um, just like our hair. Uh, our hairs are attached to these um, uh, root hair plexus, you know, that if you pull the hair, bend the hair, we sense that. Yeah. And their hairs are sensory, probably more sensory than ours. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, when they would come up to us, it was just inc- it, it was just incredible. And they would roll over, and you could rub their belly and rub their back, and it was that's it neat. was great, really chill. Yeah. So it was quite a different experience than I don't know. Did we talk about these guys? Um, it's possible. I don't. I I've talked with you about them uh, just kind no, of on I, our own uh, before. Uh, but, yeah. I don't think we've talked about them on the show. Okay. Yeah. I just, the shape of them, their, their features are amazing to me. They have that kind of this, you know, muzzly, whiskery mouth that they suck, oh, and suck the, and chew up these seagrasses with, and they have these, yeah, these very front. Very prehensile lips. I mean, yeah. they, I don't know if you saw a little footage in the uh, show, in the movie, but they, they, they would be chewing, sort of chewing on the, on our ropes that were our anchor ropes. It looked like they were using these ropes as floss. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were just rubbing, the, the ropes would be going through their mouth and their lips would sort of wrap around the ropes. And yeah, it was amazing. The, the inside the, of their lips it would have these spine-like things that would literally be able to grab, I think, plant material and pull it up. Wow. It was, seeing the detail inside their mouth was incredible oh i bet and they were just really docile if you've watched right in the dance water you saw one manatee coming up to my son who was a cameraman yeah and um and literally hugging him but knew it was a land creature so it kept dane buoyed up so it didn't didn't drag him down wow and it was it was a, a great time I was coming out of being sick, so I wasn't feeling, I was chilled to the bone. I'd been in the water for half hour and I was in the cabin and, uh, of the boat and the boat was a heated cabin and had hot cocoa and Dane was yelling at me because he was wanting to get me on film with this very affectionate manatee. And I was, I was sipping hot cocoa <laughs> in a heated cabin. I you're was doing, chilled to the You bone. were doing the same thing the manatee does in the winter. You were yeah, going for man, a warmer climate. I was going for a warmer climate. Yeah. And my son was like, dad, come, you know, and I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, I'm very glad that he got his, um, there's a segment yeah. in the movie yeah. of just him getting selfies with this manatee that was, his his best friend had a, had a crush on Dane. <laughs> yeah, these uh these creatures are so fabulous. Uh, you know, I've I've been interested in in the in the one that slipped away from us relatively recent history, the stellar sea cow. Yeah, uh, which uh, most of these creatures are tropical in nature, right. or the ones that or still semi, extant, se- semi subtropical. Yeah, and- at least warmer oceans. And this stellar sea cow, which was significantly larger and, and found much further north. Yeah. Um, Stellar, Stellar got stranded on an island and made a lot of observations. And uh, uh, Now, did it have, because it was in Arctic 
That's a subarctic, well, cold, but subarctic. But did the Stellars have a blubber layer? They did. They had blubber, and the, most of the talk was about how good it tasted. Wow. Uh, they they were was very. That why they were? They were very out? docile. Yeah, they needed food, uh, and so they they ate quite a few of them. They were very docile creatures. They their ship was uh, they shipwrecked on this island, and then the storm broke up the rest of their ship. It was on, I think it was finally named Bering Island after Vitus Bering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, the sea cow was named after Stellar, but these were like 30 feet long. These oh were like goodness. two and a half, three times larger than your average manatee. Wow. And so very large creature. Um, with and a did th- they, like and they got bump. hunted to extinction? That's the thought. They got hunted to extinction. Part of the reasons? Well, there's a couple interesting things that I've read about recently. One is it was thought that the, and- you know, from a creationist perspective, we, we believe there was an ice age mm-hmm. uh, that f- uh, followed the flood. And mm-hmm. this, this ice age, it's thought, restricted their range. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was thought that they w- were on the short. And any ecological change, any, any quote-unquote climate changes, there's always going to be winners and losers. And right. so these guys apparently especially were one of the have, losers. If, especially if they're not, especially if they don't quickly adapt to the yeah. change. Right. And so it's thought that the glaciation was made it difficult for them to access a lot of their former range. So the range got restricted. Another thing that's thought, which is really interesting, uh, these guys, uh, unlike the, unlugh the tr- more tropical manatees and dugongs, which primarily feed on seagrasses, these fed on kelp. And it's hmm. thought that because of the otter, the, the severe restriction of otter populations because of the Russian fur trade, they were hunting otters. Uh, that was the heyday of the otter hunt. Right. The sea otters, well, they, right. they brought a lot of money, especially in the Chinese market. And so uh, it was thought that with the reduction of otters as the keystone predator in that ecosystem, the urchins just abounded and they're direct competitors for food. Mm-hmm. So it's thought that maybe the reduction, of, and this is speculative, we, we can't really know mm-hmm. this for sure. It's an interesting, interesting hypothesis. It's thought that those otters. Well, the removal of otters from a large swath of the North Pacific Caused allowed the, the urchins, urchins to, to mow to, down the kelp. Exactly. And that was the major food source for the, the sea cow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I knew the connection between the sea otters, urchins, and kelp. Right. As the otter being a keystone. But yeah, that makes sense. And it makes sense too to have, you know, there's this rule, and I can't remember the name of it. Maybe you remember, there's this rule that if you have similar species um, across latitudes, the more northerly versions or, or types or species or subspecies tend to be a bit larger in, mm-hmm. in, that makes um, sense. in mass. Yeah. And that definitely yeah. seems to have held that's, true that's for the Cyrenians. Yeah. You see the small, like white-tailed deer as an and example. It's the same with your, your elephant seals tend to be larger when your southern elephant seals that are way down in the Patagonia. Yeah. They're bigger than the, the, um, California. Yeah. California. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. A larger body won't lose as much heat. Yeah. So these, these manatees, they have two front flippers. Then they and have then this they have kind this of fluke like thing. Yeah. It looks like a, a rounded spoon. It's like a paddle. It looks like a paddle. Yeah. Whereas the, uh, dugongs in Asia or Southeast Asia. Yeah. The coral Australia, triangle. And- yeah. They have a fluke that looks much more like a porpoise. It looks a lot, and it functions that way too. Yeah. So, and they, well, and they, both of them use the, to propel. Yep. But one's much more of a, 
spoon shape rather than a, so a tail fluke. Maybe the dugongs a bit more athletic members of the family. They're able to swim faster, I believe. Uh, really? The which ones? The dugongs. The dugongs. A bit more athletic, makes, a, li- a little yeah. bit more hesitant around people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're smaller. They're a little bit smaller okay. than the manatees. Yeah. Small eyes, not great. Very great eyesight. Very tactile. Right. Not. Uh, yeah. And a huge amount of stomach space to take on. I don't know. I don't, I haven't memorized the trivia of how much vegetable matter, how much seagrass they take on. Yeah. They really, they really eat a lot of plant material. They do. And I haven't looked at the, I haven't studied their digestive system, but it makes me wonder if they have something. I mean, the, the store, the story about their, they're kind of fusiform in shaped. Yeah. They have this fat middle and tapered ends. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the, they talk about the digestive system needing to be massive right. to process this plant material and that that being the explanation for their, their girth. Yeah. But I haven't looked at their digestive system to see how it's similar or dissimilar from a ruminant, right. a terrestrial plant eater. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see those differences. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just to, just a few words about conservation because often when something is protected like that there's going to be the rallying cry is mostly from secular environmentalists that sometimes they can be for christians who are generally conservative they get bothered when the say the secular environmentalist is you know is shrill about we need to protect them and we do need to protect them but just how should christians view you know it's very easy to have animals or plants get nudged off either pushed to the brink of extinction not because of wanton slaughter not because of greed but because of just what we do that we we often don't think about the habitat requirements of various animals and they're often compounding effects that yeah, there's compounding sometimes in di- in di- indirect. And so I think it can be off-putting because sometimes the secular sounds sounds like we're like McLeach in in rescuers down under we're we're wanting to kill and destroy and the 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 rhetoric is like very accusative sometimes, right? Uh and oh the blame you know, is off the blame is often placed on policy. Yeah. Right. So there's almost always a policy agenda mm-hmm. uh, in the in these things. And, and you know, to be successful in a, in a dichotomous political system, you have to cast the other guy in a terrible light often right. to be able to get things. But if moving. you want to get buy in, I mean, I would think they should take a different tact. And that is we know that most people aren't trying to throw these things under the bus. Right. Often just our own development, what we're doing. We might not even know that our actions and are adversely affecting some species, whether it's motorboating. Say, we know that uh, manatees get scarred up by motorboats. Right. And it's, let, it's not like they're going out to hurt manatees, but there's, you know, as Christians, we should think when we're taking dominion, we need to think in terms of we're sharing the environment with other creatures that might be more vulnerable to our actions. And instead of having it all be policy driven, where it's just top down command and control, we, we legislate this. We say you can't 
you know, and then it's often overreaction. You can't touch it. It's like we've we've hunted them mercilessly or we've injured them, we've damaged them, we've destroyed their habitat. Now it's a no touchy, you know, no touch. Yeah. And it's sort of an over, almost an overreaction where we can't interact with nature because there's a few bad eggs out there that are going to be harmful. Right. But as Christians, as we're taking dominion, as uh, the gospel expands uh, through this world of ours, we we need to be the ones that are, you know, taking the lead to show um, concern and not just be kept in check by legislation that's been enacted by secularists who may have an over their they've obsessed over or they worship nature so they've got they've enacted these laws they've they've and then we are now having to follow their laws <laughs> rather than let's let's do this grassroots where we we are telling teaching people about the beauty and diversity of nature and teaching people to take care of it Without, I mean, there's always going to be need for laws, but the the laws. If if you've got a lot of people that don't care about the creation, don't care about God, don't care about the law, the laws don't always don't always help. Well, in fact, I, sometimes the laws say, you know, the first thing uh, uh, somebody who doesn't care when you say don't touch that animal or don't hunt it, you know, it's almost that nature of well. Nobody's going to tell me what. <laughs> right, to, right. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I no, would and not I was known. wondering, I was wondering, you know, and, and part of that, one of the entities, I, I've been a part of a number of different kind of collaborative conservation uh, efforts over the years. And uh, ecotourism um, is one of those entities that uh, I think can be very successful yeah, in be. implementing conservation on the ground right. in this same way you're describing. And so, for example, you probably signed on with some some organization or some business that took you guys to see the manatees. Right. They right. got paid so some money and they're probably doing something to conserve right. manatees as well. Right. And so I think it'd be great to have even more Christian based where you're absolutely um, Christian based ecotourism yes. where you're not only listening out there if if you are oh. game, get a hold of us. That we I think this is one of the best ways we can take Dominion. Right. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, and that you're also giving God glory for these wonderful creatures. Yeah, and yeah, it's, I heard it's, a, it's a it's it's um a kind of like Romans thirteen. You can obey because of possible punishment. You know the but the secularists are supposed to. That's what the laws for is that they're afraid to step over the line because of getting fined or busted. And but Christians should want to obey a particular, you know. Because because of conscience, right, right, doesn't mean we obey all every last rule. And, and it doesn't on, it doesn't mean we don't need to be educated about yeah. about where there is a, but the, a a need to be cautious. Yeah, you know, and I've always felt I'm not a political type person. You know, the political people want to uh, they want to enact uh, through politics. They want to affect change, which right. is it's fine, <clears throat> but. I would rather affect change through a grassroots of appreciation of nature because you can you can actually have a lot more accomplished when there's sort of a, a yeast in the loaf effect yeah. of 
not only the gospel changing hearts, but the gospel not only changes our hearts in relation to and reconciles us to God, but also begins to, we begin to appreciate what God has made. And so there's this natural outworking of a, a healthy concern, a healthy desire to care for and exercise godly dominion over the creation without having secularists always be haranguing us and breathing down our necks, telling us what to do. We're already, we, we want to be ahead of the game. We want to be ahead of the curve in um, taking care of creation. And there are a lot of good, uh, there are a lot of good examples of projects. The Nature Conservancy has evolved in a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of habitat restoration. Uh, I was just going to mention, I got to sit on, in on a webinar um, a week or two ago um, where an author of a new book called We Are All Whalers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, his name is, his name happens to be Michael Moore. It's not okay. the same Michael That's... Moore of, of right, Bowling right. for Columbine fame. Uh, he's a veterinarian um, and he's a whale uh, biologist. And so he's actually uh, done whale autopsies for decades. Wow. He works for the Woods Hole Oceanographic wow. Institute in Woods, Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Woods Hole is sort of the mecca for marine biology. Well, yeah, definitely on the North Atlantic, and 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 so that's and that was kind of the mecca for uh, whaling in in the U.S. and in, in North America was mm-hmm. you know New Bedford, Nantucket, uh, Martha's Vineyard, Cape Cod. There, um, so it was an interesting interview where he talked about. One of the big conservation issues, according to him and according to the folks at Woods Hole, is this um, entanglement of the North Atlantic right whale in fishing gear. So it's unintentional. Right. It's, uh, we've stopped whaling as a country. Right. There are still whaling nations out there, um, but the North Atlantic right whale, there's less than 400 left. Wow. And most of the deaths are caused by this entanglement in, in lobster uh, end lines going from the buoy down to the pot. Wow. And one of the interesting takeaways here is something I'd never thought of before. And for a lot of you are probably like, well, duh. But one of the interesting things was he, he had, he had the, as a veterinarian, he was an advocate for patients. And he thought of his, his, uh, his, his creatures that he, uh, that he, that he worked with were patients. Mm-hmm. And so as an advocate for patients, he, he made some remarkable observations and said, you know what? The amount of whaling we did wasn't acceptable, but the practice was far more humane than what happens to a whale when it gets entangled in fishing gear. Right. The whale dies in a number of minutes, usually less than three, when a harpoon is placed correctly. Right. But the whales that get entangled in these fishing gear can actually suffer for months and they starve. And so just hearing that perspective, it kind well, of- how do they breathe? I mean, are they near the top? Because they can't hold their breath forever. No, they're so, so they're, they're, this, um, this okay. cord doesn't prevent them from moving. It's not heavy enough, but as they get entangled and it continues to wrap around them, depending on which oh, wow. way they move and how. And so they can still surface, yeah. um, but it so eventually prohibits, this, they get a lot of cuts in their yeah, body. And I'm glad you brought that up because so much of the problem is unintentional. Right. Um, it may be knocking an ecosystem out of whack. And so something where you're not even trying to harm, say, manatees, but um, because of our not being ecologically circumspect, yeah, other things are, they need seagrass. Right. And if there's a depletion, whether we're not keeping high enough 
acreage of seagrass, then the manatees will start to dwindle. Right. So we need to be aware in order to take dominion, we have to be aware of not just the not just appreciating the animal, right. but be able to protect the ecosystem that they that's essential for their survival. Yeah. And this guy and really that requires more of an understanding. You don't have to be an ecologist, but right. you have to at least do a little uh, homework. Do some homework and say if we're going to take care of God's creation, we need to know the habitat requirements, yeah. know the ecosystem, know their whole ecological niche. This guy really struck the balance too. He was he was I I admired him after the right. webinar. His books his books in my cart. He wasn't shrill and uh, uh, he was thoughtful and wise. And he said, you know, this we don't solve this by stopping commercial fishing at all. I want a th I love seafood. I want a thriving commercial fishery. Wow. But we need to make these changes yeah. in how the gear, uh, in what gear is used. Yeah, and he and then he had solutions too. That's great. Some sonar powered floats that remove the need for these end lines and and so it's neat to see proactive yeah, conservationists like, like that. Yeah, that's great. Well, well, this uh, this has been a fun topic. Yeah, I can't wait to go and and hug a manatee one of these yeah, days. One of these days, and if not on this life, I'm sure there'll be manatees and <laughs> uh, the new heavens. I hope and so. The new earth. I hope so. All right. All right, Gordon. We'll see, you. we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O -E science.com. <laughs>